This morning, as you're opening your Bibles to Philippians chapter one, I want you to be reminded that he is worthy of our time this morning. He's worthy of our focus. He's worthy of us using our brain power and our, and our mental capacity this morning. He's worthy of our note-taking uh, this time in the word he is worthy of. And so I pray that we will... Uh, um, make the most of our time this morning. So as you, hopefully you have your Bibles open to Philippians chapter one. This morning, we're just gonna dive into the very first couple verses, the first two verses of the book, which is primarily an introduction and greeting. I wanna read it for you and then we'll dive in. Philippians chapter one, verses one and two, read this way. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The first few sentences of this letter seem pretty straightforward, seem pretty formal, a typical address to a church body. The first few verses are typically helpful as Bible scholars. This is what we would typically do. We would look at the first few, few sentences or verses to teach us a few things. The authorship, so who the letter was written by. The audience, who the letter is written to. And maybe some of the settings, where the author is when he is writing the letter where the audience is when they are receiving this letter. And this is very true of the book of Philippians. These first two verses do that for us. They lay out a bunch of context for us, which is really helpful. We looked at that a little bit last week. But I also want you to notice that these two verses are packed with gospel truths and gospel implications. They teach us so much more than merely some who, what, where, when, why, and how's. These verses are packed with depth and information. As Todd mentioned last week, the church in Philippi was a young, healthy, growing community of believers that Paul knew well. He knew these people. It had new converts. Lives were being changed Leadership was being developed. These congregants were sent on mission. There's so much happening in this young, healthy life of this church. And this community had been blown away by the grace that they had heard about that comes only through Jesus Christ. And it was that story, the story of grace that Paul shared with this church in Philippi that was radically changing it. This growth was happening and it was incredible. And so Paul, seated in prison, now writes this letter to this church that he admires, that he loves, he adores, and his encouragement to them is to keep going. Stay strong, stay focused. And so my prayer is that we dive into this book, is that we would hear the same encouragement as we study this book together. Keep going. Stay strong. Live for God. Honor him with your lives. So our sermon this morning is a very simple text, and our sermon is a very simple sermon. 
My desire for you as we look at just these first two verses is to just make some observations. As we look at these verses, there's a few things that should jump off the page at you and would be great summaries or observations of two things, of a healthy church and healthy believers. This is who Paul's writing to, a healthy church with healthy believers, not perfect, but he's making some observations that I think would be helpful and beneficial for us to consider and to apply to our lives. So three observations today, that's our text. I hope that you'll have your Bible open. I hope that you'll have your notebooks open or at least a pad of paper. I hope you have a pen in your hand. I wanna make some observations for you to underline and to highlight because these will be common themes throughout the entirety of the book. So three observations, that's our sermon today. Number one, a spiritually healthy believer and a spiritually healthy church naturally exhibits, and I'm gonna give you three things from the first two verses. A spiritual, number one, a spiritually healthy believer and church exhibits, number one, unity. Last week, Pastor Todd mentioned that we will discuss the theme of gospel partnerships a lot throughout this book. It's a common theme as Paul talks about this, their partnership in the gospel with him and with others. A similar theme or synonym maybe of this idea of partnership could be unity. Because it's fair to say that good partnerships demand unity. And so I want just to make a few observations on verse one of this idea of unity that I hope jumps off the page at you. Please understand that Christianity is not just a system of beliefs. It is a system of beliefs, but it's so much more than that. It's a family. Or as 1 Corinthians tells us, Christianity is a body with many members. The church is a body with many members. And a key to any healthy family or any healthy body is unity. This is a call and a charge and a reminder from Paul to this church to be unified. That if you're gonna accomplish much, if you're gonna be on mission, if you're gonna obey Christ's commands, that unity is required. Notice in just these short two verses, the number of inferences to unity or partnerships that are displayed for us. I hope you have your pen, you're willing to underline or highlight or at least jot these down. You're gonna notice these assumed um, relationships of unity that show up in these first two verses. The first one you'll notice there is the very first couple words of the text, which is Paul and Timothy. Paul and Timothy. This is a a, a friendship with deep unity in them. We know that Paul and Timothy went on this missionary journey together in Acts chapter 16. They were friends, they were co-laborers. Timothy was his son in the faith and there was great unity. And so Paul is addressing this letter with one voice with his friend and co-laborer, Timothy. As I was studying this, it was hard to kind of find a concise uh, decision, somebody, somebody in here may know, was Timothy with Paul or was he speaking on behalf of Paul? It's kind of a debate. Some believe that Paul in his older age was um, writing this letter verbally and Timothy was writing it physically, kind of um, pronouncing it to him and having him be his, his, uh, his scribe. 
Others believe that Timothy wasn't there, that he was away and ministering and pastoring. And so Paul just with one voice is sharing on behalf of Timothy. But isn't that interesting? The letter we know, if you want the authorship of the letter of Philippians, it's Paul. But Paul is so in one voice and in unity with his friend Timothy, he speaks on, their, on his behalf. It's, a, it's a, a, um, just an assumed uh, clarifying moment of unity between Paul and Timothy, co-laborers in the faith that are striving together with one purpose. Another inference of unity is the two titles, overseer and deacon. Do you notice that? In one sentence, the two are lumped together in a sense of unity, describing as the leadership of the church. As you know, any healthy church must have unified leadership. For sure, the roles of overseer and deacon are distinct. But in any healthy church, these two roles have to function well together. One that oversees and leads and the other that serves and cares. Those two distinct roles must work hand in hand in order to be a healthy, thriving church. The third inference to unity is that of the church leadership, the overseers and the deacons with the believers, with the congregation, to all the saints who are in Philippi with the overseers and deacons. There's this, again, assumed a partnership and unity between the church leadership and the church body. Those two have to be on the same mission, headed in the same direction for the glory of God, for a church to be striving and healthy. Many of you probably have been a part of churches where that wasn't the case, where there was enmity and strife between the body and the congregation or in the leadership. And so Paul is inferring the necessity for unity between the church leadership and the congregation. I think there's at least one more. Notice when he says, all the saints. I think that's an inference to unity. The body's gotta be in unity. Gotta be together. You are brothers and sisters in Christ. And he includes in there the overseers and the deacons. They're not distinct, or they are distinct, but they're not separate. There's one body and this body's gotta be unified in order to accomplish the mission that God has called you to do. Brothers and sisters, we've gotta get along for the sake of the mission, of sake of what we've been called to as we've been united together through our adoption into this body, we've got to get along. And again, we've all probably been a part of congregations and churches where the body just is at odds and, and is striving and they're fighting for their preferences. We have to be willing to set aside some preferences for the sake of the gospel going forward. I have the privilege of teaching membership class with a great team. And, and when anyone becomes a member at First Family Church, they make a commitment to unity. And we just take a pause, slow down, and remind anyone that wants to join this body, you have to be in unity with the fellow congregants. There's going to be preferential differences. But if Jesus is our goal, if his glory is our aim, all of us, for the sake of the gospel, have to be willing to set aside our preferences for the glory and honor of God. And I wanna say, church, you do that well. You do that very well. It's, I'm, I'm very proud to be an overseer at this congregation because of the unity that I see. And then lastly, there's one more inference of unity. And this is the most important. It's that of the Godhead. Notice at the very end of verse two, he says, 
He says, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Church, all unity stems from our creator, our creator God, his perfect unity in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in perfect unity, always on the same page for the same point, for the same goal. They are a perfect example of unity. And so as followers of God, as disciples, our example, our, our focal point should be the perfect unity in the triune God. And so we get our marching orders from the Trinity, from the God who established our world, who created us. Church, everything the church is and does demands unity. We must get along. So I pray that verse one of Philippians chapter one would also be true of us, that everything about us, every nuance of this church would be filled with unity. Number two, the second observation I wanna make from the first two verses of Philippians. A spiritually healthy believer and church exhibits humility, humility. And again, I hope this is a, a common sense statement, but unity requires humility. We'll never have a unified church without humility. And Paul addresses this very idea in our verse as well. As we talk about gospel partnerships, church, good gospel partnerships will demand gospel humility. We have to be willing to partner together, to team together in order for the gospel to go forward, in order for us to be a part, I should say, of what God is going to do in the world. Unity requires humility. I want you to circle two words for me in verses one and two. Circle the word servants and circle the word saints. Again, this is not just a formal introduction. This is not just, well, this is how you start a letter, dear John. Like, it's way more than that. Every word is important and on purpose. And so I wanna look at these two words quickly for a moment. The words servants and saints and help you understand how they lean into this idea of humility. Servant, the word servant here, who is, who is he introducing or who is he um, addressing the title of servant to? Notice this, this is so interesting. Paul and Timothy. Paul and Timothy are the servants. So circle the word servant and point back to Paul and Timothy. These are who the servants are in this letter, Paul and Timothy. If, you wanna, if you're having a hard time remembering who Paul is, why, or maybe it's not odd to you that Paul would call himself or declare himself a servant. That should be a little odd. Paul's resume is actually in Philippians chapter three. So if you flip over one page, you'll hear in case you forget who Paul was and how shocking it is that Paul would declare himself to be a servant. Let me read it for you. This is Philippians chapter three, verse four, to help you understand the amazing statement it is that Paul would consider himself a servant. It says this in verse four. If anyone else thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, regarding the law of Pharisee, regarding zeal, persecuting the church, regarding the righteousness that is in the law, blameless. That's Paul. 
That's who introduces himself as a servant. Does that sound like a servant to you? No, it sounds like a, a leader. He's a, he's a Pharisee. He's a law keeper. He's blameless. In the earthly realm that we live in, you'd probably declare that guy, put label that guy a leader, not a servant. So it should be a little bit shocking to you that he, right at the beginning, labels himself a servant. You see, Paul is no mere servant according to earthly standards. But when he introduces himself, he can't cling to his credentials because he more readily relates to the title of a mere servant. Imagine Paul standing in the mirror, knowing what God has done for him. He thinks about his resume and he's like, yeah, none of that fits. It doesn't stick because of what I know about myself and what I know what God has done for me, the only title that seems to cling, the only title I'm willing to be identified as is that of servant. Do you hear that humility coming out in Paul and Timothy? So they address themselves as not saints, not leaders, but servants. For a little bit of Greek, this might be interesting to you, that word servant is the word doulos. It has a couple meanings. It can mean servant. It can mean bond servant, which is somebody who willingly chooses to be a servant or a slave. Or the most wooden and literal definition is that of slave. The most accurate definition of the word doulos is that of slave, a word that we're not very comfortable with. So what would make Paul so comfortable describing himself with that of a servant or a slave. I think it's because of this. He knew that being a servant to Christ is not a curse, but a blessing. He knew the master so well that he was excited to devote his life to serving his perfect master. You see, before Paul met Christ, he was a big deal. And now, after meeting Christ, his perspective has completely changed. He views himself so differently now. His big dealness no longer feels right. So you bump into Paul and say, hey man, what's your name? Hey, my name's Paul. What do you do for a living? Servant of Jesus Christ. Is that actually true? Well, actually, he's got some accolades that he could, he could drop. He has a resume he could produce. Who am I? Servant of Jesus Christ. The resume no longer fits. Paul, chosen by Christ to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Who was Timothy? Chosen by Paul to pastor. Yet the title they both feel the most comfortable with is that of servant, slave of Jesus Christ. You see, those who have genuinely met the grace of God embrace the role of servants of Christ Jesus. I think one of my greatest privileges here at First Family Church, one of the things I've really come to just adore and love, one of my job descriptions, is I oversee the First Impressions team. The First Impressions team, in case you're not aware, these are our greeters, our ushers, our cafe, our parking lot team. They're servants, the team of servants. So as you walked in the building, all of you were held, the door was held for you. 
As you walked into the worship center, you were handed a bulletin. As you went to find a parking lot, somebody in a yellow or orange vest told you where to park. This team, I absolutely love serving with. And at every, every Sunday at 10 a.m. before the service, our team gets together and I get to tell them what to do. It's ridiculous. I don't know why they listen to me. And so just as I was preparing for this message today, I was trying to think through like, man, that is kind of shocking. This point is about humility, so I'm not gonna mention any of their names, but I do wanna drop for you some of their resumes because it will be surprising to you how willing they are to be servants. Because in our economy, right, leaders have the corner office in the high-rise building. Servants hold the door, right? So why are these leaders willing to be servants? Because they've met the grace of God. Here's a few of their resumes. On my first impression team, people who are in the parking lot with an orange vest on, people who hold the door for you, hand you a bulletin, make you coffee. Here's some of their resumes. On my team, I have a CEO of a company, I have the president of a company. I have a politician. I have lots of engineers. It must be an Iowa thing. And I have doctors on my team. And every morning, every Sunday morning at 8 a.m. and 10 a.m., they meet with me and I get to tell them what to do. The humility they, uh, they display is incredible. The fact that they're just willing to say, oh, yeah, I'll hold a door. I'll pass out a bulletin, I'll make coffee, I'll go wipe up water after a baptism. I'm willing to do anything. Why is that? Because they've met the grace of God. They know the amazing privilege it is to be a servant of King Jesus. Absolutely amazing. Every time I'm in that meeting, I'm thinking, I'm the least educated guy in the circle. Why are they listening to me? It's just amazing, the humility that is created when you meet King Jesus. A spiritual, healthy believer church exhibits humility. Now let's look at the next word, saint. Man, this again is not an accident. The word that Paul uses to describe the believers, saints, is very intentional and purpose. He says to all the saints in Jesus Christ, including the overseers and the deacons, so he's saying there's a group of people in this church in Philippi, they're called saints. That title encompasses the body and the leadership. Your one title, your saints. Paul here is reminding you and me that no matter our title in the church, we are fellow saints. We are all, hopefully, this is what a saint is, a former sinner, that's what a saint is, somebody who was a sinner who's now been declared righteous, a, a saint. We were former sinners who now, because of the grace and mercy of God, have been declared saints. Depending on your church upbringing, that sentence may be shocking to you. That Paul would use the word saint and talk to all of us. I don't know if we have any uh, uh, those that grew up in the Roman Catholic tradition, but that sentence wouldn't settle real well because they have a very specific definition of the word saint. So for Paul to call y'all saints would be a little shocking. So I want to explain this real quick because it, again, will help us understand what God has done for us. In Roman Catholic theology, saints are super Christians. 
In Roman Catholic teaching, a person does not become a saint until he or she dies and is beautified or canonized by the Pope or prominent bishop. So the Pope or a bishop looks at your resume after you are gone and decides whether or not you were a good enough Christian to be declared a saint. That's who gets the title, saint. It's an honor for great works, for, for being a, a super Christian. In Roman Catholic practice, the saints are revered, prayed to, and sometimes even worshiped. Is that what Paul means when he says to all the saints in Philippi? It can't, it can't be. You see, in the Bible, saints are called to revere, worship, and pray to King Jesus. In the Bible, everyone who has received Jesus Christ by faith is a saint. That's the biblical definition of a saint. Those who have been declared righteous, an honor that God has bestowed upon you even though you haven't earned it. Do we have anything to boast in? No, it's all been given to us by Jesus Christ. I think what Paul is subtly laying out for us is this understanding or this recognition of how spiritual growth works. I wanna lay it out for you. I think it's a three-step process, and this will help you see and understand, I think, how spiritual growth naturally happens. You see, all of us, the day we're born, we are sinners. We are rebels against God. We are not obeying his law and his commandment. Can we go to the next slide real quick? Thank you. I wanna just lay this out for you. The progress of spiritual growth. Every single one of you, you and I were born sinners. We're rebels against God, not obeying the law, not keeping the law. But there's a moment in our spiritual journey when we meet God, we meet Jesus. We are face to face with the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. We call that the day of salvation. And that day, you didn't do anything. The grace and mercy of God was revealed. And that day you were declared a saint. You didn't earn it. You weren't beautified or canonized or your resume wasn't inspected. You didn't have a resume. You were a sinner. But that day, God declared you a saint. Then the more you grow in your knowledge of God's amazing love for you, the greater you become aware of your own unworthiness the more you embrace the role of a servant. This is how spiritual growth works. It's not a ladder. You are a sinner separated from God. The grace and mercy of God is revealed. You're given everything. From the moment you're given everything, you realize how unworthy you are and what a privilege and honor it is to be considered a servant. Even the title saint doesn't seem to fit. Feels unworthy to be called that. You see, Christians... We're sinners, and we've been declared saints, and we are constantly growing in our comfortableness or our gratefulness of the role of servant. We are not saved as mere servants who one day by great effort will earn the role of a saint. You are a saint. I'm not a pastor today because I've earned the right. I'm a pastor today because God has called me to this specific task, and you have as well. I'm a fellow sinner saved by grace, just like all my brothers and sisters here. We each humbly play our part. We have no right to be proud. 
The last point I want to share with you, an observation of a spiritually healthy church, spiritual healthy believers, number three, a spiritually healthy believer in church exhibits grace and peace. This is how he ends it. He addresses, Paul is giving a blessing to this church, grace and peace. He's exhibiting grace and peace to this church. Paul is expressing grace and peace to these believers because he has received grace and peace from God. Church, the essence of the gospel could be summarized in this sentence, grace and peace. The very summary of what the gospel is and what has done for us and what it has accomplished could be summarized in these two words, grace and peace. So what is grace? Unmerited favor, unearned love. That's grace. You have received this from God. What is peace? Safety and security. Safety and security. You've received this from God. I think one of the best verses to summarize this idea of peace, that we now peace with God is Romans 5.1. It says this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. No longer at enmity with God, no longer enemies, no longer estranged from God. We are now unified. We are in Christ because of our faith, justified by faith. Those who know they have been given everything, grace and peace. Those who know we've been given everything and can't lose anything ought to be the kindest people in the world. There's no one nicer than us because we've been given everything and we can't lose anything. We should be the most gracious people in the world, the most peaceful people in the world. We should be peacemakers in the world we live in. Let me show you one more progression. This I call the process of spiritual growth. So the first slide I showed you was the progress, sinner, saint, servant. Now I wanna show you how that works. How you get to the point where you're like, man, I'll do anything for God. I'll serve him with my life. It starts with guilt. You and I were born sinners, separated from God. Somewhere on your spiritual journey, someone told you you were a sinner. Maybe it's the word of God, Maybe it was a friend, a pastor, and you realized that you were a lawbreaker. And that guilt pointed you to this question. How can I be right with God? How can I be made right with God? And then that person loved you enough to share with you the story of Jesus. How Jesus came and lived the perfect life and he died in your place. And he has now given you unmerited favor, unearned love that you could be right with him because of his grace. And that grace overwhelmed you, amazed you that God would love a wretch like you. For the rest of your life, you live a life of gratitude because of the grace that you've received. See, it's that process that makes you want to be a servant, that makes you say, Paul and Timothy, mere servants of Jesus Christ. We will just serve him with our life. So are you gracious? Are you peaceful? Do you realize you have everything, can't lose anything? Therefore, your hands are open to how God will use you in your life. That's, that's a servant. And those who have everything, give generously. If we've received grace and peace, we ought to be the first to extend grace and peace. 
I wanna just take a moment and reflect on these first two verses for a second. We've talked about a lot of things. We've talked about this idea of unity, humility, grace and peace, the progress of spiritual growth, the process of spiritual growth. I just wanna, let me boil it down to you all into a take-home truth. I hope this is beneficial for you. And just as I was settling on these two verses and what must be true of this church in Philippi and how Paul so boldly just kind of declares this about them, I was like, man, I wanna be this type of person. I wanna be this type of church. I hope that First Family is this type of church. Let me boil it down for you to just a little take-home truth. It goes like this. Kindness, humility, and partnerships will ooze from the believer and the church that is overwhelmed by the grace of God. And that's my prayer for us. It's my prayer for you. That's my prayer for me, that we would just be uncommonly kind, uncommonly humble, and just willing to partner for the sake of the gospel because we know we need help. That this idea of unity would just be so true. There's this great unity Nobody thinks highly of themselves at first family. They're all just willing to do whatever it takes for the glory of God, man. I want that to be true of our church so badly that this would just be the type of people we are, the type of people we send. Take no credit for it, for God's honor. So is this true of you, church, friends? Are you oozing with kindness, humility, and partnerships because you're overwhelmed by the grace of God? I pray that Paul's charge to this young, growing church in Philippi would be heard well at this young, growing church in Iowa. And this would be true of us. I just wanna end our sermon today a couple warnings. Just a couple, a challenge or a charge quickly. Like, here's potential dangers. Can I just share with you quickly three Three potential dangers. Like this seems, that take-home truth just seems so normal. Like, of course. But, but why isn't every church, every Christian functioning that way? I wanna share with you three potential poisons that corrupt partnerships, humility, and grace and peace. The first is, I think that many times, Christians and believers, they want credit. I think that's a poison that creeps into churches we forget it's all God's, so they demand credit. So anytime anything happens, anytime people get saved, baptized, a movement starts, lives are changed, they gotta put their label on it. The FFC stamp, we did that. Gotta demand credit for it. Baptisms, salvations, giving, they gotta put their label on it. Let's be very cautious of demanding credit. Why do we need credit? Did we do it? No, we're sinners saved by grace. Everything that's been given to us is given to us by God. We're mere recipients of his goodness and his grace. Let's be very careful, cautious of the poison of demanding credit for things that God has done. The second thing we gotta be very cautious of, potential poison, is bragging about the accomplishments. So not just taking credit for it, but promoting it. Man, look what's going on here. Look how awesome we are. Isn't this incredible what's going on? Yeah, we're pretty great stuff, man. 
ruins a church. It destroys a church when they lose their humility and they make it about themselves. It makes me nervous too, because it's never been easier in the history of the world to brag than right now. We all have this gift and this curse called social media, and it just gives you an incredible platform to brag. We, church, have to be cautious of bragging about things that God did, as if we had anything to do with it except for recipients of what God is doing. I wanna be the church that boasts, as Galatians chapter six says, we boast in the cross of Christ. That's it. What do I bring to the table? Sins that need to be forgiven of, that's it. All glory and honor goes to God. We've gotta be so careful stealing credit, bragging about something that God did. It's a poison to healthy churches. And lastly, The last potential poison is not working well with others. The unwillingness for gospel partnerships. Man, I've been a part of churches and I know churches that it's just, it's hard to work with. As long as you're on their turf and doing their thing and they're in charge, you can work with them. But this give and take just doesn't happen because they're everything they've figured out everything, just do it their way. Man, that's just not humble. We are better together, church. Probably here at First Family Church, you hear a lot about partnerships. We're part of the SBC. We're part of the IMB. We're part of the SEND network. We're part of the 435 network. Like, we're, everything's an acronym. Why? Because we're better together. We're part of the cooperative program. Like, Todd's in the Middle East right now. Why? Because we know partnerships are great for gospel, gospel progress. We're limited if we try to do it on our own. It's a poison to the mission of God when you think you're good enough to handle anything. For God's glory, we're a part of something big. We're not big really grateful to be a part of a church that thinks highly of God, not a first family church. I really want to stay true to that. Instead, let us boast only in the cross of Jesus Christ.